Last week in our look into the Acts of the Apostles, we ended with the Ethiopian government official, known as the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, after being explained the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing some water along the road as they traveled and, and said in Acts uh, 8.36b, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And verse 38 continued, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And with this act, possibly the first Gentile was added to the role of the Christian church. And I say possibly because there are dueling Gentile conversion stories. Uh, In Acts 10, Cornelius, a God-fearing Roman centurion, was converted through the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And the thing is, is, well, this is chapter 8, and chapter 10 is later. Well, things don't necessarily fall in a line in Acts. We do not know in what order truly everything happened, because it wasn't important what happened first. It is important what ultimately happens. And knowing that the book of Acts does it that way, it does not really matter to us, and certainly not to the new converts themselves, who was baptized first. It's just unimportant. Admission to the kingdom of God was the only thing that mattered. Now, you would have thought that I would have finished up these last two verses of that section last week, but you would have thought wrong. I don't know why I didn't. I was going somewhere. So we have the last two verses of the section of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. And it says, And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So immediately after the baptism, the Holy Spirit himself removed Philip from the scene, and just as quickly as he'd been sent for the benefit of the Ethiopian official, he is gone, vanishing from sight. Was this a sign from God to the Ethiopian official that something miraculous had taken place, that God had intervened in his life in a personal way to meet him on the road and bring him into the kingdom? I would have to say that, yes, that was the sign that God sent. And then the Ethiopian continues on his way home, which I pointed out is five months by, well, as it says, chariot, five months by ox cart, because chariot simply means wagon in Greek. So it was another five months, but the Ethiopian official continued on his way home rejoicing. But, it says, Philip found himself in Azotus. Now, Azotus is the Old Testament uh, Philistine city known as Ashdod. And you've all heard of Ashdod, I'm sure. And after 
being transported there by the Spirit, Philip, which was 20 miles away from where he was. Ashdod, Azotus, was 20 miles from Gaza. He continued preaching all the way up to Caesarea, which was another 60 miles. And it says he preached in all the towns along the way. So we do not know how long that took. But, you know, just walking it was a three-day walk. So, so did he take a week? Did he take two weeks? Did he take a month? Scripture does not tell us once again because it's not important. It's important what he did. Now, earlier in this series, I'm pretty sure that I said that this is the last we see of Philip in Scripture, and I misspoke. Philip shows up again. It's the Ethiopian that we hear the last of, though history tells us the Ethiopian went back to his country, which um, is not Ethiopia, it's Sudan, but the Ethiopian went back as a missionary to his own people and spread the word of Jesus Christ. Philip, however, does show up again in Acts 21, just a few chapters later, but 20 years away as the time flies. Luke narrates in verse 7 of chapter 21, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Poor Philip. <laughs> he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. He um, probably never got another word in edgewise. What can I say? But... I jest, because what a blessing to Philip the Evangelist, who was a prophet, to have his daughters take after him. Now with that, we end chapter 8 of Acts and come to chapter 9. One of the most famous passages in the New Testament, except for all the others. There are so many famous passages in the Bible. But this one's really famous, okay? Verses 1 through 2, which is what we're covering today, says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, what we're looking at today is, you know, Do you believe evil exists? A slight digression. Many years ago in another church, we were without a pastor. And those of you who have joined us from 2011 to 2016, this will be very familiar. We had students studying at the International School of Theology, which was Campus Crusades Seminary down at the bottom of the hill, filling in our pulpits. And the digression is this. Just as we were blessed by a number of people who are now pastors throughout the country, we had one that we especially liked that came up and preached. He was very young. He was just studying for his master's. So I guess he was 21 or 22. We really liked him. He was really bright. He really 
had fascinating sermons. He really had it together, and, and the church approached him, not me, but the people in charge back then, to see if he would consider a pastorate in our church. And no, he decided he wanted to finish his education and see where that took him. And you may not know the name, but his name was J.P. Moreland. He's one of the most outstanding theologians of the 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s. I don't know what he's doing now, but he turned out to be a theologian everybody quoted. But he did not become our pastor. We were very sad. But we followed his career down the line. So anyway... During this time, that was, that was my digression. During this time, I was, because we were, you know, handling the church ourselves, I was having a Sunday evening um, hymn sing every, every Sunday evening. I would bring my guitar. Uh, several of us would bring guitars, and we would, we would just sing hymns in the evening. And one night, one cold night, one cold, rainy night, it was a dark and stormy night. No. But it was. It was really dark and it was really stormy and nobody showed up. It was me. Uh, my, uh, my other guitarist didn't show up. My wife didn't even come. I don't know where she was at that time. Um, I don't know why. Except for one neighborhood lady who did not attend our church. Now, some of you might be surprised to know that back 40 years ago, there were houses up here whose heating systems were not very good, whose lighting systems were not very good. And this lady came to the church for the evening service, I think, because the lights were on and it was warm. Okay? And because it was just two of us and she didn't know any of the songs, and I probably didn't know them either. What can I say? I was answering her questions about Christianity for an hour or an hour and a half. And at the end of the evening... She said, she said, you know, I'd be a Christian, except I don't believe in evil. And I don't know what had happened that week, but it was something particularly evil. I mean, evil happens every week, but this week was something incredible. And I brought it up, and I wish I could remember what it was, but, but I said, what do you call this? And she says, well, I know it was bad, but I just don't believe in evil. I don't, basically, you know, shortly after uh, Flip Wilson, you know, the devil made me do it, okay? Well, she just simply did not believe in evil. She did not believe in Satan. She did not believe in demons. She did not believe in any of that, and I never saw her again. Now, you know that I listen to Dennis Prager during the week, and I even bring him up in some of our Sunday school discussions from the standpoint of a honest Torah-reading, synagogue-going Jew. I don't bring him up for theology. I bring him up for his, his insights into the way Jews think, especially as we're going through Acts and the transition from the Christian church into uh, the Jewish church into the Christian church. And I was listening to Dennis Prager, and he said, 
this week. He said, I've never been one to believe in the devil or that evil is, a wor- uh, is at work in the world. But I've changed my mind. What's going on in the world right now has changed his mind on what's going on. He said, uh, how can you look at what's going on in this country and not see the hand of some malevolent force, some evil being behind it all? And how indeed is my question? But you see, it's not in Jewish theology to believe in Satan or the devil or demons. The Jews see Satan as the accuser. Someone who accuses God's people to keep them accountable. Okay, And Satan does mean the accuser in Hebrew. But I've got two little excerpts here from two Jewish sites I went on, and they're reputable Jewish sites. One, and they didn't have their information at the bottom of the page. I printed down a bunch of these things, and I picked the two I wanted to read. So I don't know where this is from, but it is a reputable site. And it says, Judaism does not view Satan with the same connotation as other religions. Satan in Judaism is not a physical being ruling the underworld. Rather, in the Torah, the word Satan indicates accuser, hinderer, or tempter. And I would say that uh, Christianity doesn't believe that Satan is ruling the underworld either. I, that is a not at least not what I see going on here, but be that as it may. That's how Jews look at Christians and what we believe. Satan is therefore more an illusory obstacle in one's way, such as temptation and evil doings, keeping one from completing the responsibilities of tikkun olam, which means in Hebrew, fixing the world. Okay? Our job, as Jews see it in Jewish theology, is to fix the world that is broken. Okay? Satan is the evil inclination to veer off the path of righteousness and faithfulness in God. They go on throughout the Torah. Satan challenges God to test the true loyalty of his followers, including Adam and Eve, which we've been studying and we've seen that happen, as well as Abraham. However, Satan remains inferior to God, which we also believe, and incapable of taking action on mortals without God's permission. In the Talmud and Midrash, Satan appears as the force in the world responsible for all sins. Some Midrashim claim that the sounding of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, the horn that they blow on Rosh Hashanah, is utilized to keep Satan away as Jews begin to atone for their sins. Even the morning after Yom Kippur, many Jews attend services to guarantee Satan does not make one last effort to instigate Jews to commit sins. And from a site called My Jewish Learning, and even though the name sounds a little silly, it's a very serious site. It's run by very serious Orthodox Jews. It says, Satan occupies a prominent place in Christianity. And I'm reading this one because of how Jews view Christianity also which generally regards him as a rebellious angel and the source of evil who will meet his ultimate demise in battle at the end of days. Okay. Jewish sources on the whole don't dwell as much on the satanic, but the concept is nonetheless explored in numerous texts. Satan appears in the Bible 
was discussed by the rabbis of the Talmud and is explored in detail in Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah. And I cut that portion out. We will not be going into Kabbalah at all. In Hebrew, the term Satan is usually translated as opponent or adversary. And he is often understood to represent the sinful impulse in Hebrew, Yetzer Hara, or more generally, the forces that prevents human beings from submitting to divine will. He is also sometimes regarded as a heavenly prosecutor or accuser, a view given expression in the book of Job where Satan encourages God to test his servant. The Bible contains multiple references to Satan, The word appears just twice in the Torah, both times in the book of uh, Balaam, and the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. The Tanakh is the whole Bible. When Balaam goes with Balak's uh, emissaries, God places an angel in his path, Lesotan Lo, an adversary for him. The term appears in multiple other instances in the prophets, often in similar context, not referring to a specific figure as the Satan, but rather as a descriptor for individuals who act as a Satan, i.e. adversaries. We do that with the Antichrist, because I don't really say the Antichrist, I say Antichrist. There are people who are Antichrist throughout history, meaning they are opposed to Christ. Now, with this as his theological background, it's not surprising that Dennis Prager did not see Satan as a being or a person. So, who is right? Is the traditional Jew right? Or is the Christian? Is the concept of Satan as the accuser or adversary of God's people correct? Or is Satan more than that? an evil entity who can have his demons inhabit people, take over a person, causing them to do what they would not. That question brings us to our last two verses here for today. We last saw Saul of Tarsus back in chapter 7 and the first verse of chapter 8 Remembering, of course, that the Bible was not broken into... Why does he show... It's like me not doing the last two verses of what we were studying last week. Last week. Why is Saul of Tarsus in chapter 7 and the first chapter of verse 8? Why didn't they break that in 1508 when they did the Geneva Bible? Why did they not put that with the stuff in chapter 7? I don't know and I can't answer that. Once again, it's not important. Anyway, we saw him in the first verse of chapter 8. A formal debate was held between Stephen, one of the seven Hellenistic Christians chosen to minister to the Greek-speaking widows in the new Christian church in Jerusalem, and the, between Stephen and the unconverted Jews who attended the synagogue of the freedmen that was in Jerusalem. It did not go so well for Stephen's opponents, one of whom we suspect was Saul of Tarsus. And Stephen was hauled by the losers, the sore losers, I might add, 
in front of the Sanhedrin and other leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. There Stephen defended himself so forcefully and eloquently that the Jews in the mob stopped up their ears, rushed him, and dragged him out of the city to lynch him by stoning. That section of scripture ended in Acts 8, verse 1, with the words, And Saul approved of his execution. So now, Saul of Tarsus reappears in our study of Acts. He had ravaged the church in Jerusalem after Stephen's murder, and all the Hellenistic Christians, Hellenistic means that they were Greek-speaking Christians, they were not Hebraic Christians, they were people of the diaspora who had come back to Jerusalem to be close to the center of their religion, but they were Greek-speaking Jews that became Christians, and they, when Stephen was killed, Saul ravaged them and drove them out of the city of Jerusalem and into the countryside of Judea and Samaria. So thoroughly had Saul destroyed the church that here in chapter 9, he's run out of Christians to persecute. They're gone. He got rid of them. They're in the countryside. But that's not good enough for Saul of Tarsus. Destroying the fledgling church in its base at Jerusalem was only a good start. Verses 1 through 2 of chapter 9 once again says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So verse 1a says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder. The word here translated as breathing is used only this one place in the New Testament. And it carries the idea, it shows Saul in such a state of hostility that even as he goes about the business of destroying God's people, he's muttering to himself. He is so angry at Christians at what they're doing to his beloved Judaism, that he is muttering to himself under his breath. How is this any different, as we look at Saul, than the demon-possessed man that Jesus ran into by the Sea of Galilee, who, who is so disturbed at seeing Jesus, he keeps crying out to him, and out of control, But this is the same as Saul is. Saul is out of control as he confronts, and keep this in mind, he's not just confronting Christians here as he drives them out. He's confronting Jesus. Jesus will say that himself. And a little bit later he'll say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's not saying, why are you persecuting them? Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul is so out of control that he's attacking God himself. Saul mutters threats against, it says, the disciples of the Lord. This does not mean the apostles remaining in Jerusalem because the the apostles all were Hebraic 
Jewish Christians, they did not leave Jerusalem. Only the Hellenistic did. Paul also was a Hellenistic Jew. He drove the Hellenistic uh, Jewish Christians out. But the apostles remained in Jerusalem. So he's not referring to those as the disciples of the Lord. No, Saul is uncontrollably muttering against common Christians, people just like you and me. Just the people in the pew is who he's after. It is not enough that Saul attacks the Christian leadership. The simple Christian followers must be made to suffer. Verse 1c through 2b says, but Saul, and i sorry to keep reading this, but if I just pick up a fragment, it doesn't make as much sense. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Now the high priest in Jerusalem, even though Jews in Jerusalem were only 10% of the Jewish population of the Roman world, 90% were outside of Jews, but still the temple was in Jerusalem and the high priest of the temple ruled Jews to a great extent throughout the world. So Paul goes to the high priest and asks for the authority that would be honored in all synagogues that Saul would encounter. Now, Saul asked specifically that it be to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, Damascus is 135 miles away. It's a week's journey for Paul to, uh, Saul to get there. And we'll see later that Saul is no longer chasing Hellenistic Christians. In Damascus, there are no Hellenistic Christians. Oh, they might be Hellenistic Christians, but they didn't come from Jerusalem. These are homegrown Christians in Damascus. The church has spread. We do not know where it has spread to because Scripture once again does not tell us. But the people that Saul is going against in Damascus were an organic church outside of Judea and now Samaria that we've seen. How many more churches were already established outside of Jerusalem already at this early date? Once again, Scripture is silent on this. It's not important how many there were, just that there were. Verse 2b says, So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way was the early Christian words for the Christian church. The Christian life. Jesus himself pronounced the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And early Christians just identified themselves. They were following the way. Other names Christians went by that you'll see in Scripture were saints. To the saints, uh, Paul will address letters. Um, Something else, those who call on the name of the Lord. That's how you knew who a Christian was. They were those who called on the name of the Lord. They were also known as brothers or witnesses. And the funny thing is, 
The term Christian um, only shows up three times in the entire New Testament. And the first times it does, it was a derogatory statement. It was, it was you Christ followers, you Christians. It was not something being said nicely. Something else to note here. Saul and Satan have no pity. Okay? Anyone he found belonging to the way, male or female, he would bind and deliver to Jerusalem. And he does not know how many of those died in prison. And I believe he says that later on. That he knew they were being killed, but he didn't care. And his zeal against those that Saul determined to be apostates had a foundation in history among the Jews. Just like Dennis Prager didn't believe in Satan because Jews don't believe in Satan, what Saul is doing here has history among the Jews. Richard Longnecker in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, It is, of course, impossible today to speak with certainty about what was going on in Saul's subconscious mind at the time. His own references as a Christian to this earlier time in his life, however, do not require us to view him as struggling with uncertainty, doubt, and guilt before becoming a Christian, meaning it didn't bother him at all. Rather, humanly speaking, he was immune to the Christian proclamation and immensely satisfied with his own ancestral faith. While he looked forward to the full realization of the hope of Israel, Paul seems, from his reminiscences of those earlier days, to have been thoroughly satisfied with the revelation of God that was given through Moses and to have counted it as his chief delight to worship God through those revealed forms. Nor, um, nor need we suppose that the logic of the early Christian preachers greatly affected Paul, meaning Stephen, did not affect Paul at all. His later references to the offense of the cross show that for him, the cross was the great stumbling block to any acknowledgement of Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah, a stumbling block no amount of logic or verbal gymnastics could remove. And he goes on to say that it is probable that Saul took up his brutal task of persecution with full knowledge of the earnestness of his opponents, meaning he knew that they believed what they were doing. The stamina of the martyrs, he knew they didn't die easy and they didn't quit. And the agony he would necessarily cause because prison was not a pleasant place. And certainly some were executed. We do not know how many. Fanaticism was not so foreign to Palestine in his day as to leave him unaware of these things. And it is quite possible that he was prepared for the emotional strain involved in persecuting those he believed to be dangerous schismatics within Israel. And what they're addressing here is his muttering. People thought he was becoming unhinged. Commentators today think he was becoming unhinged. And this is what's being addressed here. That his muttering shows that psychologically he was not in a good place. 
this fellow is saying, nah, he was doing fine. He, he knew what he was doing and he enjoyed it. More important, however, in days when the rabbis viewed the keeping of the Mosaic law as the vitally important prerequisite for the coming of the Messianic age, Paul could validate his actions against Christians by reference to such godly precedents as Moses' slaying of the immoral Israelites at Baal Peor, Phineas' slaying of the Israelite man and Midianite woman in the plains of Moab, and the actions of Matthias and the Hasidim in rooting out apostasy among the people. Second Maccabees, which is a Jewish uh, apocryphal book, but Second Maccabees points out that it is a mark of great kindness when the impious are not let alone for a long time, but punished at once. And this would have been Paul's feeling about it also. They need to be punished at once. So, if the Old Testament saints were directed by the Holy Spirit to destroy the enemies of God, who exactly was directing Saul of Tarsus or anyone opposing the church established by the Lord Jesus Christ? I just talked about Antichrist. If you're opposing the church of Jesus Christ, you are acting in the spirit, shall we say, of Antichrist. Who is directing the opposition of the church today as we face what's going on in this country? Who is it who stalks the righteous throughout the land, either today or 2,000 years ago? For that answer... Let's not go to Saul of Tarsus. We know what he'd say. I just read you what the Jews of his day thought. Let's instead go to the Apostle Paul, which is um, more appealing. The man that Saul of Tarsus became through the grace of God. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, he says... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Who are the rulers? Who are the authorities? The cosmic powers? Spiritual forces of evil? Paul says they are not flesh and blood. It's not the people in the government. It's not... (laughs) It was not the physical Saul of Tarsus even. It's Satan and his demons. And if Paul's word is not good enough for you, and by the way, if you go on and look some of this stuff up on the internet, um, be ready for what you see. People don't like Paul. It's quite startling. 
to see how much certain people don't like Paul. Anyway, if you don't like Paul. Let's go to what Jesus had to say about this. Speaking to a group of Jews, Jesus says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8.44 Do you still not believe in Satan and his minions? demons Jesus does in Matthew 25 41 Jesus says then he will say to those on his left depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels Jesus knew exactly who Satan was and what he's doing he's not just the accuser of the brethren which he is But he's not just that. He's not trying to keep God's people humble. Okay? The Jews are wrong. He, not the devil's advocate, which is a legal term, trying to prove a point about people. He is not the devil's advocate. He is the devil. And he's stalking our land right now. Let's close in prayer.